Jerry Ratcliffe here with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Tonya Meisenholder is the Deputy Commissioner of Equity and Inclusion for the New York City Police Department. We talk about hiring and retaining a diverse workforce, engaging underrepresented groups within the police service, and what she learned about being black and blue in a post-George Floyd world. Hello again, folks. The guest theme for the previous episode was Cagney and Lacey, a pioneering 1980s buddy cop show that had the first all-female leads for a police show on network television. For this month, the guest theme was, well, I'm not sure a classic police show, but it is damn funny. This comedy first debuted in 2013, and the eighth and last final season will be released towards the end of the year. It was to be released earlier, but is apparently being rewritten in response to the killing of George Floyd. The seven seasons to date have subtly woven in many of the themes and challenges of contemporary policing with a diverse workforce that we touch on in this episode, so it'll be interesting to see how the writers handled the last season. My guest is Tonya Meisenholder, the Deputy Commissioner of Equity and Inclusion for the New York City Police Department. Prior to joining the NYPD in 2007, she worked with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and I think these days they throw in an explosives at the end for good measure, and the New York, New Jersey Hyder, that is the high-intensity drug trafficking area. She's also worked with police departments in Birmingham, Alabama, and in New York State with the cities of Schenectady, Albany, and Troy. Her NYPD career has included stints in intelligence and analysis, project management, risk management, policy development, strategic planning, and research and evaluation. She has a PhD in criminal justice from the University of New York at Albany. We caught up in her office on the 11th floor of One Police Plaza, right in the heart of Gotham itself. You've never done anything live? Not a podcast. Live radio or something like that? Yeah, like NPR. Yeah. You know, stuff like that, but good. It's stressful, right? It's not stressful doing it. It's stressful. And then when you think about the, do I actually sound like a reasonable human being on the other end of it? But I also think that, you know, it's, it's weird coming doing podcast interviews with people and kind of saying, here, come and speak to me and do something that's really unusual you've not done before. And I think kind of live radio is probably the closest approximation yeah. of it. Yeah. But I can imagine it's also weird because you have an interesting topic area as well. What is, it, what is your official title anyway? Deputy Commissioner of Equity and Inclusion. Deputy Commissioner of Equity and Inclusion. And what the hell does that actually mean? So equity is about fairness and inclusion is about creating a sense of belonging. Is that within the NYPD or is that for how the NYPD behaves externally to, to people outside the organization? Both. So when I think about equity and inclusion, I think about the internal aspects of it in our employees, but then I consider the impact that it has on the communities we serve. So if we don't treat our employees well on the inside, then how do we expect them to treat others on the outside? There you go, using all these kind of sensible principles. You're never going to get anywhere in policing with that. <laughs> I'm a civilian. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you've been in around policing for a while, haven't you? That's right. So I've been in policing for well over 20 years. Started in Birmingham, Alabama as an intern. Worked some with the Birmingham, Alabama Police Department and then spent several years upstate in Albany, Schenectady and Troy Police Departments before I joined the NYPD 
about 14 years ago. What were you doing upstate? I was a crime analyst. I was working on my PhD in criminal justice. I'm from the South and I thought that the North was an awful place and didn't <laughs> think that I would, would stay there, but I, I engaged in my academic pursuits there. Soon realized that I was not going into academia. Sensible move. Was, I was much better suited for policing. I met a guy. He became an NYPD cop. I followed suit and I've been here for about 14 years. And you've been a civilian in policing for about 14 years. That's right. Crime analyst. What an unsung, underpaid job that I think is so crucial to policing in the 21st century. I was the first crime analyst in Schenectady, New York Police Department. And I worked for an incredible chief who embraced the work that I was doing, which at that time was very basic, like how do we display calls for service on a graph, and then didn't even touch how do we use this in terms of tactics and strategies. I do think it is an underutilized resource in law enforcement more generally. Yeah. It's really complicated in the NYPD where we have so many precincts and different ways of thinking about crime analysis. But you also have really different communities here. We do. Very diverse communities. Every precinct is different and there's communities within communities. And then beyond patrol precincts, we also have housing commands, transit commands, and how we police those broadly is very different, and then how we analyze crime in those areas is different. Given that there are such diverse communities across the city, I mean, it, the size and scope of the NYPD, I think, is unfathomable to most people in policing. This is the first, one of the first offices of its kind in any police department, right? Yes. As far as I'm aware, it is the first office in a law enforcement setting. So we were established in, in 2018 and it's really an evolution of our Equal Employment Opportunity Office. But thinking about how do we drive issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion forward. And I think it's important to send a signal that the status of an office with real structure and personnel and attention to policy and practice is really, it, I think it's really great in the 21st century. We should have been doing this a long time before, but it, we're getting there, right? That's right. And I can say that since we've been established, we've received requests from several other police departments who are interested in establishing offices or at least personnel assigned to offices around equity and inclusion. So in many ways, the NYPD leads the way. When they contact you, what do you tell them? I mean, what are the benefits in setting up an office of this kind within an organization? We talk to them first about how this office is organized. And I think it's important to note that we are very much internally focused, whereas we have other bureaus that focus on the external aspects related to equity and inclusion. And so we make that very clear. We talk to them about what our structure is like, where our focus areas are, and where the challenges are and driving change forward, especially cultural change, for something that sounds very philosophical. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine some kind of knuckle-draggers with 30 years in the job, probably it sounds all a bit warm and fuzzy, right? We have some employees who very much understand what we do, why we do it, why it's important, and then we have resistors who want nothing to do with it and don't understand why we have an office like this in NYPD. Well, Jack Maple, who is a famed detective from this very police department, 
once wrote that sort of 10% of the department at any time is actively seeking to undermine any good thing that you want to try and do. I would raise it above 10% <laughs> if I was <laughs> asked that question. Well, and, and it probably increases dramatically based on how new and innovative or just different each initiative is, right? For sure. And then if you think about generational issues, as you indicated, or gender issues, when you talk about creating a safe space where employees feel like they belong, that doesn't necessarily resonate. Right. with the police officer on the street who's responding to calls for service on a daily basis. Yeah, I mean, you've got people who get out into the districts, get out into the precincts, and that's where they spend their career. That's right. But I wonder sometimes if they're a little oblivious to see the change in the new police officers that are coming on board because it's a very different generation. I couldn't agree more. I think the folks that are coming in now have different values, different motivations, different desires from what they expect a career in law enforcement. And I think it's a challenge for those that have been around for a long time to recognize that and to think about what that means and why it's important. But it used to be a badge of honor, didn't it? Once you have like double digit years, you've got 10, 15 years in, it's fairly standard to say, well, this is shit. It's always been that way. And this is what you've got to put up with. That's right. But what you're actually trying to do is to kind of create the organization that's more supportive, especially I'm guessing for younger officers. For younger officers, for women, yeah. for the LGBTQ employees, any number of people who are coming on this job with different perspectives, different life experiences and want different things from the job. There is resistance from people that have been around for some time and, you know, dealing with that is complicated and sometimes you just have to go around those folks. Yeah, that's a hard one though, isn't it? Because you're never going to bring everybody with you. And that must be particularly difficult for anybody that stands out because it's such a cultural job, it's such a teamwork-oriented job. For somebody who stands out and a little bit different, it must be really challenging to work in a big organizational environment. Yeah, it is. And, and, and think about, as a young officer, what it's like to speak up or stand up to someone that has been around for a long time that knows far more than they do about policing when they see something, when they hear something that doesn't sound quite right to them or doesn't sit well with them. So there is a power dynamic that you are really working against at all times in the organization. And that can manifest in two ways, because you can have people that are the same rank as you, but they hold status within the organization for being a, what we used to call an old sweat, you know, being That's around right. a bit. But then it also can manifest itself as people who have rank as well. And people don't leave jobs because the job's awful. People leave jobs because the boss is awful. But in law enforcement, it's not always so easy to leave. No, that's right. Yeah, even in big organizations. We know that we lose about 50% of any recruit class by the time they have 10 years on. And for those that stay past 10 years, when you really think about who are we retaining for how long, and that's part of the work that we do in equity and inclusion is think about that. For instance, are black males leaving at a higher rate than their white counterparts? That's wow. got to be hugely concerning. It is concerning. It's, it's difficult enough to recruit and hire certain demographics into the organization. And it's even more challenging at times to keep them. I can see the challenges in multiple ways. First of all, there's just a huge investment in those people. But secondly, you know, given the nature of policing in urban environments, especially big East Coast cities like Philadelphia and Baltimore and New York, 
you know, those are the very officers that send such a great signal to the community about inclusion, about employment, about role models in the community, and to be losing those at a faster rate, that just must be a horrible challenge to try and address. It is very challenging, and I think one of the questions that you have to raise is, you know, are they institutionalized into the policing culture? So we've had a number of losses this year, both in terms of deaths due to COVID, and we've had many, many officers retire from policing. So our numbers are way up. In terms of separating, in terms of leaving the department? Yep, and that's due to the climate that we're in, that's due to the fiscal crisis that we're in, and for some it's due to changes in policing that they don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, you kind of have to admire anybody that signs on the line and walks into a recruiting office to join policing at the moment. Yeah, it's tough. And so thinking about how do we reach some of these people that are not interested in a career in law enforcement? So you have people that are interested, you have people that are aware of the opportunities, and then you have those that are qualified. And we know right now, we've always struggled with black males in particular, with females, especially Asian females. You know, how are we going to get them in to take the test? Are there processes you can put in place to actually help these underrepresented groups with the process of just getting into the department? Yeah, one of the things that we're working on here, we refer to as barriers. So one of the core missions in OEI is to really think about how we identify and address barriers throughout the entire employee life cycle. So from recruitment, what's preventing someone from even applying to take the job, and then what is preventing them from moving throughout the hiring process. Do you have any examples? So the psychological exam, for instance. I certainly couldn't pass that these days. <laughs> well, I couldn't either. So we know that certain groups fail the psych at a different rate than others. We also know that certain groups get through the background check at a different rate than others. So really looking at all of that and thinking about what's happening and why and what can we do to change in order to make it easier for people to join the department. So for instance, years ago, you would not have been able to join the NYPD if you had a background with marijuana use. It's not the case today. And that has an impact on any number of people. That all sounds reasonable for kind of obvious groups, people of color, that it's acceptable in America and society to retain that kind of demographic information. But what do you do about finding ways to support and to encourage the participation of the LGBTQ plus community? Right, that's a great question. And I think in terms of demographic data on our employees, it's really important to think about the demographic data going back historically for a really long time. For instance, right now, I know that our most recent recruit class was 24% female, but I also know that we've only moved the needle on females from 15% to 19% in the overall representation over the past 20 years. Well, if there's any consolation, moving to like 19% puts you ahead of just about every state police in the country. It does. So we have the basic information, race, gender, age, but what you're asking about is how do we collect that information that, that's not reported in your average, you know, census document? Yeah, it's kind of that merging of sort of gender and sexual orientation and that whole area, isn't so it? So intersectionality, right? The yeah. merging of all of your different identities. Some are compliance issues. So, for instance, this year we recently updated our personnel system 
to collect information on gender identity. How do people feel about being asked about that? Right now, we're asking new employees, so people that are coming onto the job. I have heard no negative accounts of anyone being asked that question. Our employees that are more tenured have the option to self-report that information mm -hmm. in the new personnel system, which will be online soon. And the reason I, meant, I, I ask is that we can't address problems if we don't have data on the nature of the problem. That's right. But, you know, NYPD are a relatively progressive organization. You have an office of equity and inclusion that we're sitting in right now. But I just wonder about some of the, how do I put this politely, less progressive police departments and sheriff's offices that are out there. How comfortable people would be about volunteering information that, that, that is very be. personal in that regard. I don't think they'd be comfortable at all. No. We have a Gay Officers Action League, which is very active. We do a lot of work with them in our office. And one of the things that they continuously raise is the lack of data on LGBTQ employees. Right. But you also have to remember that you have some that are out and others that are not and yeah. don't want to be. So that's an individual issue that you have to reconcile. In 2019, we did the first ever employee survey on LGBTQ, voluntary, of course. To that must have been fascinating. It was fascinating. It was, one, just to see how many people actually responded, the reaction to some folks that we did it. And to your point, some people reacted very poorly because you know, there, there are many people that still do not agree. But that's a data point. It is a data point. It's not a positive it's one. It's not a good one, but it's a data point. But what we're moving to is to collect sexual orientation data in our personnel database. So we have vetted the fields and we will make that as a self-report option in the upcoming months. I do believe that we will absolutely be the first law enforcement agency to collect self-reported information on sexual orientation. I think the challenge will be is that you will get a number of people in the LGBTQIA community who will provide this data, and then you will have a lot of others who will not answer the questions. Right. It's almost a catch-22 situation, because to feel comfortable answering those kind of questions, you have to create an inclusive office. So if you don't have an inclusive office, you don't get the information, but that's probably the reason that a lot of people might be leaving. Yep, and it's very difficult for people to reconcile that. You know, at the end of the day, I think what an officer is thinking when he's out on the street with someone who doesn't think or act like they do is what does it mean for me in this moment? Um, and the moment you don't necessarily care that this person is gay or bisexual or whatever the case may be, but when you go back to the command, you might think about it a different way. Right, and that's an interesting way to frame this because there is a sense with most officers, I think fortunately, and I'm very grateful for it, is that the sense of overwhelming professionalism I'm working with officers right now in Philadelphia in a high drug trafficking, drug area, people with a lot of problems. And the officers are dealing with people in a very professional manner. And yet, you know, privately they may say, I could never be like this. How do people let themselves be like this? But when you actually see them interacting with the public, they have a professional demeanor that I understand and respect. But outside of that, you come away from it. And of course, that's where you're going to start having some personnel issues. That's right. This year we did employee forums on race and law enforcement. So after the death of George Floyd, we sent an open letter to our employees inviting them to take part in these discussions. Very difficult, very candid discussions that brought up any number of issues around race and policing. But one of the things 
that was raised is exactly what you're talking about. You have, for example, a black cop and a white cop in the car together, and you're policing in a certain neighborhood, and the white cop makes a comment about the people in that neighborhood, and the black cop doesn't say anything, but he's thinking, wait a minute, I look just like that person. Right. So how do you reconcile that? And the white cop can get out of the car and deal with members of the public perfectly professionally and think that that's enough and that's okay, and get back in the car and start to create a workplace environment that's not as supportive as it could be. Absolutely, so we, we see that. And that type of work is critically important. And it's really important to change the culture and to get people to think differently about some of the challenges that we face internally in terms of how we treat each other, but as importantly, externally with the communities that we work in. I mean, I think the internal stuff is really, really important because if you can create a supportive workplace internally, you can put up with all sorts of shit externally. Yeah. You know, because you, you have that sense of a cohesive organization where there's space for everybody to participate and be part of the team. But it starts from within. Right. You know, and if you don't recognize that, then shame on you, because how we treat each other is just so critically important, and that power dynamic is huge. You know, the NYPD has over 50,000 employees, 35,000 sworn, about 18,000 right now that are civilians. And there is a difference in policing and how we treat and think about our civilian employees and our uniform employees. And those dynamics play out daily. I think it's something crime analysts have particularly experienced over the years because they're often dealing with decision makers and frontline officers. So instead of just being a sort of distant personnel, I don't want to denigrate in any way, shape or form people who do personnel and payroll, especially if anybody's in Baltimore struggling to get their pay right now. But you've got some civilian staff who work really closely with the police. And I know that over the years, they, it's always been a long-running issue just talking to crime analysts about how they felt that it's been challenging in that kind of environment. And you've been there. You know, I was there for many years, and I have a great deal of appreciation for the work that crime analysts do. But in a precinct, a crime analyst is a civilian with no rank who is reporting most often to a sergeant and each of those units is going to act very differently based on the dynamic of that particular precinct and whether their input is valued, how it is received, how much they're able to contribute, how they're engaged, are they included, Yeah, is all very much affected by people. Just giving people a seat at the big table is a huge step. That's right. When we talk about diversity, First, we often talk about it in terms of race and gender, which is fine, that's important, but then you think about all of the other ways that we differ in terms of sexual orientation, religion, life experience, everything that goes into the diversity, but a lot of the diversity in the NYPD is in the lower ranks. And so when you look up... It starts to become a bit pale male and stale, does it? It does, and I've said this to the police commissioner, while we may be a diverse organization, we have a long way to go in terms of being an inclusive organization. So if you think about the, the rank structure in policing and how you kind of 
slowly climb that greasy pole. If there was a lack of diversity 20, 30 years ago, that's going to manifest itself now in the top of the organization. Absolutely. So the, the officers you have who've got five years service or less are going to be hopefully reflective of the leadership in 20, 25 years time. But what you're looking at is a leadership that reflected what the organization looked like so decades to ago. Think about, often don't think about the long game though, right? So right. last year did some work with a captain here, Captain Coffee. Fabulous in thinking about women in policing. It's in a dire state in the United States, and I just don't know why people don't see this. I don't think they recognize what females bring to the table that's different than males. You know, what we did here internally is we surveyed female sergeants and said, why aren't you taking the lieutenant exam? Because if we can't get the female sergeants to take the lieutenant exam, then they can't become captains. Then they can't become, right. they can't move up if they're not there to begin with. Anything in particular strike you? A lot of it was work-life balance. This job takes a toll. This job takes a toll. And once you are motivated by, by certain things, then having the ability to have that balance is very important for females. I'm guessing one of the areas here, but it's reflective of a broader societal expectation that more child rearing, for example, is dumped onto the, dumped, is me, no kids, is, is, is dumped onto women, basically. Absolutely. You know, we're a microcosm of society and that's reflected in, in many ways, but we're doing a review of our patrol guide right now, right? So I sent uh, an email to someone and I said, why is it in our patrol guide procedure for lost children that the child must stay with a female uniform member of the service. Right. And it's patriarchy at its finest, right? Yeah. And some people are aghast. And then others are like, well, who else is going to watch them? The very temerity that you would even ask that question. Right. But what yeah. does it say about how we think about women's role in the workplace? Yes. And I think that we're doing a lot here to think about that. And we talk about issues in policing that affect women. How do you reconcile work-life balance? What does it mean if you're pregnant on the job? What are the implications for you? Emotional well-being, any number of things that affect employees generally, but may be very specific to women. What are the things that have come out of that? I mean, what are the lessons for, uh, for other departments? What it's done, it's created a networking and a mentoring opportunity for women to come together, to know that they're not alone, to have an opportunity to talk through issues, to figure out ways to problem solve about issues that affect women in policing. Mentoring outside of your own organizational structure with all the inherent problems of rank and just the workplace dynamics itself, I think that's an underappreciated benefit of thinking to how to help people navigate through a policing career. It certainly affects underrepresented groups. In particular ways, the NYPD has made various attempts at mentoring over the years, and we have you know, field training program, which some would consider mentoring, I do not. We have other programs, but to me, they're, they're primarily orientation. So if you look over here on my board, you'll see that mentoring is number three, as we in the agency well, I can just about make that out. Are. I mean, you have like a medical doctor's handwriting, but I get the gist of it. We are. You could call that whatever you want to call it. <laughs> we are thinking about that, and we are thinking about how to provide mentoring skills to more of our employees because navigating the NYPD or any you know organization really can be really challenging and there is that part of the organization where it's not what you know but it's who you know right 
Yeah, it's never something, of course, I've ever had to worry about because I've, being a white male, I've never had to worry about looking around the organization struggling to find somebody who looks like me. That's right. Can't find anybody that thinks like me, and that's probably a good thing, but they certainly all look like me. It will become a little bit more challenging for you. And then I think broadly in terms of the national landscape, you know, we're doing some work on 30 by 30, which is the idea of increasing the representation of women to 30% by 2030. That's the work that Moma Goff started when she was at the National Police Foundation and now with the Policing Project. That's yes. right. Phenomenal. So Mo's been a guest on the podcast previously. I listened to her. I thought she was great. I continue to think the work she does is critically important and going to do my best to ensure that the NYPD signs up for that pledge and helps to move that work forward. Do you think getting to 30% of the the sworn workforce being women is attainable? Yes, I do. Do you think that's where we should stop? Because I was wondering why it wasn't 50%, which is where places like New Zealand are reaching for now. I think we should continue to drive forward and increase it as high as we can go. Women bring so much to policing. When you think about the academic research and the differences in de-escalation and use of force, I think that that is underestimated and undervalued. Can we get there? We can in the NYPD. Can you do it in other places who some agencies don't have female officers at all right now, right? Which, the, which know, is just astounding, isn't it? It's it 2021 is, people. It is. You know, get we're with the program for crying out loud. We're at 19% of our sworn. We have much more on the civilian side, but our most recent recruit class was 24%. But when we talked about barriers earlier, you have to think about not only what it takes to hire them, but are they getting through the academy at the same rate as their male counterparts? Are they getting promoted? Are they taking advantage of civil service exams? Are they moving throughout the organization? And I'm always astounded when I hear and learn of organizations that let alone analyze it, and not even collecting that kind of information. They just don't think it's relevant. As long as they have a class, they're fine. I understand the fiscal issues, the technical issues, the capacity issues, if you will, that some agencies might have in collecting that information. I cannot reconcile that agencies don't want to collect as much information as possible on any number of factors, including their employee demographics. In 2020, we started to post our employee demographics online for the first time. And transparency is something that we're very much committed to. And if we don't currently collect it, we have to think about how can we collect it. But the challenge with that is when you think about collecting particular pieces of information around religion or sexual orientation, how do you do that in a way that's practical for the organization and fair to the employees? Where is the level at which point the organization is capable of reflecting the diversity of the community, but also down to what kind of level? Are we down to the stage where we're starting to worry about the demographic structure of all the officers at each precinct matching the demographics of the people who live in those precincts? At what kind of organizational level do you go, you know, we need some flexibility here? So. Right now, we're in the midst of police reform, like many agencies throughout the... It kind of feels the, like we've been in the midst of police reform since about 1993. Right. But 
In New York specifically, we are under Executive Order 203, Governor Cuomo's order to reform and reimagine policing. And we've held a number of sessions where we've invited people to provide input to the department on how they think policing should change. And one of the primary items that has been raised over and over again is the idea that the police officers should be more reflective of the people in the communities that we serve. So the question that I always ask when that comes up is, what is it that people actually want? Do they want someone that looks like them because they believe they will understand them more and can relate to them more? or do they just want to be treated with respect and professionalism? Yes, do I need to look like you to understand where you are and to treat you with respect and relate to you? That's right, and in policing, as you well know, you know there is at times an us versus them dynamic that plays out in powerful ways when you have so much power over others. And that can cross racial boundaries. It absolutely does. Policing shouldn't be something that we do to people. It should be something that we do with people. In the NYPD, I can say that by law, we are not allowed to place individuals in any command for any reason beyond language. So even if I wanted to say, I want to make sure that there's X percentage of Y people in a particular precinct, legally, I am not able to do that. That's really interesting. So there's legal protections, support staff in some regards, but hinder their capacity in other regards to be able to work in districts that are reflective of the people that are around there. That's incredibly challenging. It is. We got sued many years ago when we made the decision to place a large group of black males in a particular command, and we lost. I mean, I can understand, I can't understand the lawsuit, because it's a horribly challenging situation because where you are posted to, where you are assigned to, can have huge career implications for you. And, and, and think about it, you know, the NYPD right now is 15.4% black, right? You know, even if we wanted to, you know, try and match the demographics of our employees to the demographics of all of our commands, we can't. It's really complicated. That's well, not to you, you say balance that we one don't. thing, you might lose another. So you can improve in terms of people of color, but then you might lose out more in terms of LGBTQIA plus community members. And that's a factor as well, right? Right. And most of the times we don't even know who some of those employees are unless they tell us. So I think I understand the discussion around having the police department be reflective of the particular community, and I support it, but I think it's, it's very complex and nuanced. And for me, what I wanna understand more is the root cause or reason of in, in what people are actually asking for. It, it's 2021, we don't do complex and nuance. We, we do simplistic and uninformed. That's how we tend to do things nowadays. I'm interested to learn a little bit more about the forums that you had after George Floyd because I can imagine that was really challenging. Did you get much engagement? It was received differently by employees. I think when the initial invitation went out, there was a lot of surprise and skepticism. 
about what the agency was doing and why are we were having these forums on race and law enforcement. Well, every, every precinct's got their conspiracy theorists that love to spread the underlying what's going on. That's they, right. Because they found out on a website that doesn't, yeah, and somewhere. The NYPD certainly has its skeptics and conspiracy theorists, just like the, ru- the rumor mill. Anywhere else. So we had hundreds of employees. We had over 40 forums where we brought people together and had really challenging discussions around race. And a number of things came up in terms of the conflict that some of our employees feel as a person of color mm-hmm. and as understandably. A, absolutely. And as a police officer. And their words, not mine, but you know, the idea of of being black and being blue and what that means. And we talked a lot about their personal experiences and what it's like to be in uniform as a black male with a cop and then walking around in your neighborhood at night in sweatpants with a firearm and the differences that, that that entails. It was very much a learning moment for many of the people that took part. Was there anything that came out of it that really surprised you? No, it wasn't surprising, but it was heartbreaking at times to hear some of the stories and some of the experiences that our own employees have had. I think it's, I mean, speaking to a few black cops and going around on the field work that I've been doing, it seems that post-George Floyd, they had to deal with a lot more at home after work. Absolutely. We heard of people losing friendships, of people losing family members, where others that were not law enforcement could not reconcile how an individual person could stay in this career and be a cop. I think that was really, really hard for many of our employees. I think it caused challenges within the agency, among our employees who felt a certain way. And then when you bring politics into the mix, and the recent nowadays isn't it that's right recent presidential election then that caused a lot of divisiveness and conflict within the agency as well 2020 was just basically a horrible year it was a challenging year to say the least has policing dealt with that with its history not very well i think some agencies have made various attempts and that could be by making statements about acknowledging the history that law enforcement has played. There are certainly agencies who have not necessarily history, but are are doing stuff to make strides. So for instance, a number that have signed up for implicit bias training, ourselves included. For the NYPD, one of the things that has come out of the race forums is that we are creating a curriculum for our recruits that really goes deep into the history of policing and provides explanations to our newest members about why some people in the community feel the way they do and what it's gonna mean for them as they walk out the door. That's the key part, right? What it means for them. In other words, how they're gonna have to think about when they interact with the public in some of the communities that we have. That's right. If you haven't had your own life experience or you're not close to someone that has, then it's very difficult to understand why that's important to someone else. If I'm in a police department that's not really thought about this probably as much as I should, where to start? Where would you start? Start talking to people. Listen more, talk less. 
diversity, equity, and inclusion is very nuanced, very complicated, and there are folks that can really talk to you about what it means, what it means for your agency, and how to drive change forward. But you need to start having those conversations. Now, equity is about fairness. Are your policies fair? Are they treating women differently than they're and they're treating other groups. Well, I know there's been a lot of issues around physical fitness tests for entrance physical exams. Physical test, I, you know, I, I think that's a, a really important part, and I know there's a lot of work that's been done on that with several women in the in the field. People like Yvonne Roman are working in it, for example. And so what we do in the agency is we go to survey each of our recruits when they decide to leave the academy. We certainly know that women fail the physical at a higher rate than men. And what should we do about that? And, and I also think that there's a more fundamental issue, which is policing has never yet really come to grips with. How physical a job is it? Uh, out of all of our standards, what I, I'd like to, to think about is, like, how often have you actually run that far or climbed that fence and I'm not the right person to ask but someone should be asking those well, questions. Well I was a cadet I mean uh, you know pe most people could get away from me but if they ran across an obstacle course or an assault course oh I've got them. Let's go. <laughs> That's right but in the NYPD you know you pass these physical standards tests when you come in and then never again. Yeah I think that what's interesting is that you've embraced these forums which is something a lot of agencies haven't done. And I think some of them are just scared to open that box to see what comes out. But it doesn't mean just because you have the forums that people are gonna rush to leave the organizations, uh, but it's the right step in terms of keeping them rather than just kind of ignoring the issues. For me right now, it's having listened, having learned, as I learn every day, you have to get very comfortable being uncomfortable. As a middle-aged white woman, and I think it's where is the agency going as a result of these forums and this internal engagement in terms of all of the external engagement that we've done as part of police reform. And if you think about the overlap, many of our employees are community members. So some of the same issues come up and how do you reconcile that? And how do you impact a culture that is generation after generation? And there are things about the culture that you don't want to change, and then there are things that have to change. And I say the word culture loosely because it's cultures, right? As each precinct has its own culture. Sometimes just on a tour or a shift. That's right. Well, there's a lot of work that has to be done, so uh, it's great that you're in here doing it and spending your time with me, and thank you very much. Though I will say there's one thing you did get wrong. What's that? You're not middle-aged. I, <laughs> I know you're just a youngster. Tonya, thank you very much. Thank you, Jerry. Hopefully next time we'll be able to do this uh, at a different location. With adult beverages. With adult beverages. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks. That was episode 33 of Reducing Crime, recorded in the Big Apple in February 2021. You can find a transcript to this and every episode at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. And new episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. If you're a college instructor and want multiple choice questions for this or any Reducing Crime episode, send me a direct message or DM as the kids like to call it. Otherwise, be safe and best of luck.